I didn't need to prove anything anymore to anyone else, or myself for that matter. I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I, I got up from the table, I called my coach, told him I wasn't playing anymore, and I put my rackets away, and that was it. Happy holidays and welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and successfully make a major career change. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you take your own brave steps to improve your career and life. Today, my guest is going to explain how she relaunched her career from being a professional tennis player to being a finance professional. We'll discuss moving on from life as a professional athlete and balancing your career choices with your personal relationships. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll explain why quitting is sometimes the best thing you can do. Today, I'm speaking with Rena Aini, a former professional tennis player who's played in the Olympics and Grand Slams, including Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, eventually moving on to work in finance for J.P. Morgan and now serving as the director of finance and strategy for Textile International, an outerwear company with offices in Asia and Europe. During my chat with Rena, she's going to give us a unique behind-the-scenes glimpse into life as a professional tennis player. And as someone who once played a lot of tennis myself, I found her story really eye-opening. If you want to learn more about Rena or get the full show notes from today's episode, you can go to careerrelaunch.net slash 32. Rena spoke with me from Brussels, Belgium. Okay, good morning, Rena, and welcome to Career Relaunch. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, you are our very first former professional athlete on the podcast, Rena. So I'm very excited to hear all about your time as a professional tennis player and also your time as a finance professional. So I was wondering if you could get us started by just telling us a little bit about what you're up to right now in your life and career. So right now I work at Textile International and Textile Asia. It's a family-owned company that we run. It's uh, What we do is produce outerwear coats, jackets in Asia for clients all over the world. My involvement is more in the finance side of the company as well as um, strategy and innovation at the moment. I'm based in Brussels most of the time and obviously I travel to Asia a lot. Now, I know that you haven't always been a director at Textile International. And uh, I was wondering if we could go back in time to your days as a professional athlete, which is something I didn't even actually know about the first time we crossed paths. I was wondering if you could take us back to the days before you shifted into working in the world of, of corporate finance and strategy and take us all the way back to the age of eight, which I think is when you started playing tennis. Could you just explain how did tennis enter your life and how did it start to become such a big part of your life growing up? Yeah, so it was around eight, nine, maybe something like that. I was living in India at the time. My father worked there and uh, we were based there. I went to school there in Calcutta. I think my mum sort of wanted to find something for us to do after school, so keep us occupied and took us to tennis club. And that's basically how it started. It was something that I found that I, I enjoyed and that I could do. And very soon I started playing local tournaments and then traveling around India and playing junior tournaments and national tournaments. So that, that was the very beginning. And it was great because I, I got to travel a bit. I didn't go to, I missed a lot of school and it was just something. I was extremely competitive and I, I really enjoyed the matches. That's how the tennis started. And then when I was around 13, I think, we moved to the UK. And that was when I started playing a lot more tournaments and traveling around the UK and playing nationals and 
really enjoying my tennis. It was a lot of fun. Now, we didn't talk about this last time, but I was actually a varsity tennis player way back in high school. And, uh, oh, cool. But I quickly figured out that I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. I was from a very, <laughs> very small town. And so <laughs> I really very quickly realized I wasn't going to make it anywhere close to being pro. So I'm going to kind of try to live vicariously through you during this conversation. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you moved to the UK. Could you just tell us about the moment you went from being just a really good tennis player to someone who entered into the professional tennis arena in the Women's Tennis Association as a teenager? At that stage, it was juniors and it was nationals and it was sort of uh, representing GB against other countries and international junior things, tournaments and competitions. That was the beginning of it. But at that time, we didn't have to decide between whether we were professionals or amateurs. We were allowed to play on the tour as much as we wanted if we were good enough. And uh, at around 16, 15, 16, I started playing women's tournaments because it was sort of a natural progression. It was something that I could do, it was something I enjoyed. It starts on the satellite tour, there's small tournaments. You travel, you play, you earn points, you get an, an international ranking. And it just goes from there. Being in England as well, we had a lot of opportunities in that we were given wild cards into, let's say, qualifying at Wimbledon or or other tournaments and then Wimbledon in the main draw as well. So we had a lot of opportunities. The, the Tennis Association tried to help us and and, and push us forward. And um, at that age, even, I, I felt that I could do as a career. I was earning money and enjoying it. Could you just give us a sense of some of the people you played against and some of the tournaments that you were in? Between the ages of 16 and probably 19, when, when I quit, I played Wimbledon several times, uh, the French Open. I traveled to Australia to, to play in the Aussie Open and also to the States for the US Open. Tournament of Champions in Florida. I played in South America, Africa, all over Europe, pretty much everywhere. And then the Olympic Games, which was the first time tennis was included after a very long time. That was in Los Angeles in 1984. Wow, what was that like for you to play in Los Angeles in the Olympics? It was probably the, the best experience of my life until then anyway, and, and probably the worst at the same time. So it's quite complicated, <laughs> but it was amazing. The whole experience of just being there was incredible, actually. One of the, the highlights of, of my life, definitely. You're going to tell us some of the people you played against. I don't know if that gets into the best or the worst moments, but uh, <laughs> if you can get it, just give us a sense of the types of people you played against. So Steffi Graf was more, she's, she's, I think, a year younger than me. So I sort of grew up playing her a few times. And wow. Chris Herbert was getting towards the end of her career. So I played against her. So I played Wendy Turnbull in the Tournament of Champions in the States at the end of her career as well. Pam Shriver in doubles, those kind of people and, and a lot more. Yeah, you know, something I've always wondered about, uh, just again, as a former casual tennis player myself, is at that level, are you able to discern the differences between like a, a Steffi Graf versus someone who's really amazing and incredible, but maybe isn't in that top 10 tier? The women who are in the top tier, they have a sort of aura around them. They behave differently. They treat you differently. There's a lot of that sort of psychological side of it going on as well. I played Hannah Mandlikova actually in Wimbledon, for instance. And because, you know, I, I'm the underdog, I have nothing to lose. And in some cases, it's easier to play the top players. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult because you're so sort of psyched out before you've even stepped on the court. That's how they make you feel. And they're really good at that. In the changing rooms as well, they behave in a different way. They keep themselves to themselves. They, they have a sort of different aura around them, which makes it very difficult for you as a nobody to play against them. 
And you were also getting into a little bit around why the Olympics were the best and the worst moment for you. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Because I'm sure that, at least for me, I think it's just amazing to even have the opportunity to go to the Olympics. So I'd just be curious what that experience was like for you. It was amazing. I mean, the opening, even just being there in the village, the opening ceremony, everything. It was the, the tennis that was a problem because I, I wasn't in a very good state of mind at that time in terms of my career and my tennis. So it wasn't the Olympics per se, which was fantastic. It was more how I felt about my tennis. It just sort of peaked at that time. I pretty much quit very soon after that. So it was a very difficult time for me in terms of my tennis, but it was also an, you know one of the most amazing, amazing times. Just being there, just getting your stuff and getting your kit and traveling with everyone. And, and the opening ceremony was something, you know, which is almost impossible to describe being inside that stadium on that day. Can you ex just explain how you navigated that decision of whether or not to continue playing professional tennis or to move on to something else? Because it sounds like this was sort of a turning point for you. The background to it was that five, six months before that, when I got selected, when I knew I was going, and uh, it was a time when I was really doing well. I My ranking was as high as it had ever been. I'd been in South America. I beat someone in the top 50, and, and things were going really well. And then from that moment on, things started going very well. Things, I mean, my my tennis just went downhill. I was struggling. I couldn't really win a match. I I wasn't feeling good about it. And it was a real struggle between that moment, which must have been in March or something that year, until the, the games, which were in the summer. I really struggled, really, really struggled. And um, and by the time I got to Los Angeles, I was really not in a very good place. I mean, you can just imagine I was at the Olympics. It was amazing. And I actually left after my match. I didn't even stay for the closing ceremony. So that just shows oh, wow. you what state of mind I was in. I got home and um, and that was the, the time when I realized that I had to take a look at what was going on and why it was happening and take a long, hard look inside myself, which is what I did. I see. And when you took that time to reflect on where you'd been and as you were looking ahead to the rest of your life, what were some of the things that were running through your head and what did you start to slowly figure out? The first thing I thought about was like, well, do I still want to do this? And I realized that I, I didn't. It was very difficult for me because that career, I was very young as well. It was my identity. It was who I was. It was everything. It wasn't something that I sort of did on the side. It was who I was. I didn't want to really think about it because it was just too difficult to do that because I was sort of questioning even who I was as a person because tennis was that important to me. And when I sat down, I got back from Los Angeles. I sat down at the kitchen table on my own for a few hours and, and just thought about what's happening? You know, why is this happening? And I realized my heart wasn't in it. I didn't need to prove anything anymore to anyone else or myself for that matter. And um, I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I, I got up from the table. I called my coach, told him I wasn't playing anymore. I waited for my parents to come home. I told them and I put my rackets away. And that was it. Literally, that was it. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine almost seeming like what I guess a lot of people would see to be almost like the pinnacle of, of one's career playing in these Grand Slams and then going to the Olympics. And as exciting as that was, it sort of sounds like it opened your eyes to the fact that this wasn't quite for you. And I'm just curious, was it the level of competition? Was it you just not feeling like your heart was in it anymore? What was the ultimate tipping point? 
it's an incredibly difficult lifestyle. So I had no friends. I had no life besides my tennis career. That was all I had. I mean, even when we were traveling and they we were surrounded by people, even from your own country, people you knew, they weren't friends. They're ultimately all rivals. And it's it's very lonely. It's very hard. I couldn't afford to always travel with a coach or, or with someone. So most of the time I was on my own. And there's a lot of free time. There's a lot of hanging around. It's tough. It's really tough. And then being ultra competitive, the losses also are hard. I mean, they, they spur you on to, to work harder and to push yourself even more. But it's a really, really hard life. On the other hand, you know, you travel all over the world and it sounds amazing. But it was tough. It was extremely tough. And um, I also realized that I wanted to be either really good or move on and do something else. And I was very conscious that, you know, having not been at school and having not really had an education that I couldn't go on doing something that I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do for much longer before I would have to make some kind of decision as to, to where I wanted my life to go. Before we start talking about your educational transition, just one more question about the world of tennis and the world of being a professional athlete. What sort of misconceptions, if any, do you feel there are about the life of a professional tennis player? There's a lot of misconceptions because obviously the ones that you, we see on the TV are we see Roger Federer winning Wimbledon and smiling and his family around him and everything looks perfect. What's happening behind the scenes and especially for people, you know, lower down working their way up or young or, or older or, or whatever it may be or injured or, you know, it, it's a very, very, very hard existence. It's very hard. And, you know, you put your soul on the line every time you step on a court, actually, because it's, it's so much more than work. It's not a normal job. It's not. So what you see is really not what's happening. And it's impossible to really explain to someone what it's like every single day. So you, you go, you have a tough loss, you come back home and the next morning you have to be back on the court. You have to work harder even than before. You have to train yourself to um to continue and to to get over it and to to make yourself better and to improve and it, it's really really hard and it's very lonely and it's very tough so you decide you want to move on from tennis then rena and from our past conversation i recall you made the shift into starting your first degree at the london school of economics what impact if any did not finishing high school have on your psychology as you attempted to start this next chapter of your career when I said to my parents that I would, I wanted to play tennis and I wanted to travel around and, and I wasn't going to go to school, I did sort of promise them that one day I would, I would do it. And, uh, and they, they kind of let me pretty much let me do whatever I want, which was fantastic. So it was always something that I, I knew I would do. I, I mean, I had to, I couldn't imagine not finishing school, let's put it that way, or not having a degree. It was something that I, I wanted to do and I, I knew I would do. But obviously, it was difficult because I, from, from the time I could remember, I hadn't really been at school like a normal person. So even when I was very young, 10 or 11, I used to miss a lot of school traveling. At that time, I was traveling in India. I was playing junior tournaments. And, you know, my dad also used to like to take us away on holiday and didn't worry too much about school. So, in fact, I, I can't ever remember being at school, you know, for like a full year. I mean, I, obviously I was, but it was when I was very young. I wanted to go back. So I found studying and doing my exams relatively easy because it was something I really wanted to do. It wasn't something that was being imposed on me like school is imposed on every single child in, in, in our society anyway. I knew what I was doing it for and that, I suppose, made it easier. 
And what was that transition like for you to go from a professional athlete on the tennis courts to uh, someone now studying to get into the London School of Economics? It went really quickly, actually, because I was really, really busy. I did so many exams in such a short period of time, basically teaching myself. It went fast. In England, when you do A-levels at high school, you have to choose your subjects. You have to choose three or four subjects to do. So it's, I had decided to do those subjects, and I decided that I wanted to study economics at university because I'd already decided what job I wanted to try and get when I left. So it was all – I was I was very focused, and um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and, and why I was doing it, so that really helped. When I said I put my rackets down, I did as a, as a professional in, in the sense of playing on the tour, but – I played for a club in Holland and I played a few small tournaments in France just to earn some money to to take me through because having not taken money from my parents or anyone for the longest time or since I was 14, it was hard to not earn any money anymore. So I I continued that in order to, to fund myself through university. Now, I know you eventually ended up shifting into investment banking and you alluded to the fact that you kind of knew what direction you wanted to take your career. How did you figure that out? so quickly? Because I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast, one of the questions is how to figure out where to take my life. I know I'm not currently satisfied with what I'm doing right now. How did you go about figuring out exactly what you wanted to do next? That was a sort of golden time of the the investment banks or the traders anyway. So I'm sure I was very influenced by that. It was a sort of sexy thing to do. I also was looking for something that I felt would really challenge me. So it was a sort of environment that I felt would be really challenging. It wasn't something that a lot of people would have thought about doing, at least someone like me in my situation. So I think that that was what attracted me to it. I felt that it was something I could do as well. I liked the sort of fast paced. Uh, these were all pre, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what to expect, really. I just knew what people said about it and, and what research I'd done. So it's the, the fast pace, the the challenge, the challenge of being on a trading floor with, I don't know, 200 men, basically. Um, I suppose that that was part of it as well for me. Can you just also give us a glimpse into shifting from being a professional athlete on the tennis courts to suddenly becoming a professional banker in the corporate world? And, and as you mentioned, surrounded by a lot of men. It was great. I just absolutely loved it. I was lucky enough also to go with the bank to New York for six months um, to do a in-house MBA kind of uh, finance program, which was fantastic with uh, graduates from all over the world. And and then London, it was just really buzzing. It was everything that I'd hoped for and expected. I have to say that I was extremely, extremely fortunate to get my dream job at an American investment bank where when I landed in London, I was on the trading desk with the head of trading, who was an incredible person. And I have to tell you something because it's an interesting story. So I, I arrive, I arrive in London my first day We'd been, you know, introducing ourselves to the rest of the desk. There were five of us on the desk, including the head of trading, who said, all right, well, all you need to know about us, you know, besides this is our names or whatever, this is what we do, is um, we have a, a tea rotor. He was American, but he's obviously become quite British by that stage. And he said, we have a tea rotor on our desk. And uh, this is how it goes. So today it's my turn. Tomorrow it's this one. And your turn will be on Friday. So Friday at four o'clock, you go and get tea. And uh, from that moment onwards, I was treated like everyone else. It was amazing. So I think I was there at a great time working in a great place with some great people. And uh, it was fantastic. Very interesting. What was the most surprising part of shifting into that world for you? Because it sounds like it went extremely smoothly. 
the most important thing is I, I left all that behind me very quickly. And that's the, the most surprising thing, I think, because I did actually love it that much. And I had an amazing experience and I enjoyed the work. I mean, the, I, I did have a few little issues when I remember once I was the last person on the desk and um, I had a call from some guy from the office in Tokyo who said, I need to do this now. So I'm like, fine, you know, I can do this for you. And he's like, no, I need to speak to someone who can do this. And I'm like, well, I can do this. And he's like, no, I, where's your boss? I'm like, well, it's me or it's no one. <laughs> and he ended up putting the phone down on me. So I, I had a few oh. of those. But I mean, that was always from people outside or other people. It was never from the people who I work with. So I did have amazing positive experience and I love the work. So what made you ultimately move on from that world that you were enjoying so much? Well, my future husband at the time had his own his family business based out of Brussels. And he said to me, look, you know, if we're going to be together, I can't move. And as it turned out at that time, the bank had a, a regional office in Brussels. So it seemed like the sort of logical thing to do for me to move and to, to come over here. You know, we had started going out when I was in New York, actually. And he sort of said to me, look, I wanted to stay in New York. Um, I was offered a job to stay out there, in fact, with the bank rather than come back to London. And I really wanted to do that. But he gave me an ultimatum and said, well, you either come back to Europe or it's over. So I thought about it a little bit and I came back to London. And then sometime later, we realized that, you know, if we were going to be together, we, we would have to live in the same country, uh, at least. So um, that's how that happened. And I moved to Brussels. And for those people, including me, who have made a move for a spouse, do you have any words of wisdom for people who are trying to make that sort of a move work? Because obviously, in that particular situation, you're putting someone else's interests as a priority and making the move for them. How did you make that work? My only advice would be to think things through as carefully as possible so that you can't look back and say, well, you know, I didn't make the right decision or why didn't I think about this carefully? I think we all owe that to ourselves. So I, I did start working in the bank and, and um, well, and had to learn French pretty fast, uh, which I did. Honestly, if I'd moved from London to New York for him uh, and continued working, it wouldn't have been an issue at all. The problem was moving to a very small regional office, which I really disliked from the minute I arrived here, which made it harder. These decisions are decisions that, that someone has to make. Yeah, that's interesting, Rena. A few years ago, I moved from San Francisco to London for my then-girlfriend, now wife, and that was a major, major adjustment for me with a lot of emotional ups and downs. So I can definitely relate to how tricky that can be. The thing is with, with life is, you don't ever know what would have happened. You don't ever have any comparison. You only have what you what you know. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult because you you don't know what would have happened if you hadn't moved, right? I mean, right. who knows? Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. So it's it's really hard when you look back, and I think that's why it's really important to try at least to think about what you know, how you what you're feeling and what you what you're thinking when you make those decisions. <laughs> When you look back on your career change, Rena, going from professional tennis player to someone who's uh, now working in the professional business world, what's something that you wished you had known that you now know? The thing I wish I had known then, which I know now, is that I'm very much a function of society, a function of uh, how I was brought up, of the society that I was brought up in. And I didn't realize to what degree that influenced my decisions and the way I thought about things, myself, my life, other people's lives um, and other people. 
I'm not saying that that would have made any difference to the decisions I've made or the life that I've had, but I didn't really realize to what extent I was, you know, not as rational as I thought and not as able to take decisions myself as I thought that I was. So I think that's what it is. Would you be willing to give us an example of one of those times when the, the societal constructs or external forces prevented you from being able to make the decisions that you wanted to make? Without really thinking about it, it was a sort of idea, I suppose, that was in me, which I, I hadn't really thought about or hadn't really confronted that, yes, I was a certain age, I was going to get married, I was going to have children. And it was something that I hadn't actually even thought about in that way. It was sort of something that I expected myself to do. So I hadn't, didn't challenge it and didn't think about it. It was a sort of natural thing. So I think that was the first thing. So after moving out there, getting married, it was then the children. So I had the first child and then I thought, well, I need to get my, I want to get my career going again. I, but what I wanted to do was move back to London three or four days a week and trade in the, on, on the financial futures exchange. But this didn't go down very well at home. My husband obviously would, would have preferred to have another child. And again, it was everyone was saying and it was normal to have another child because you don't only want to have one child and you know all this kind <laughs> right. of stuff i mean it sounds ridiculous the way i'm talking about it now but it's the dumb thing it was what was expected it was how it was i did sort of challenge it but maybe not not really and and adam i'm sorry if you're listening to this but you know i i mean i thought one child was fine you know she was great you know <laughs> it was okay i was ready to work again but it didn't my life didn't really pan out like that. And I think a lot of the time it was just because I went along with it and I hadn't, I didn't really ask myself that many questions about certain things, which were, I suppose, expected of me. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think we sometimes all fall into this trap of just following these societally constructed milestones. You know, you go to school and then college, maybe graduate school, get married, have a kid, have another kid. And yet, that may not be the right thing for you, but it's just sometimes hard to block all that external noise out and it's hard not to fall in line. That's right. So I, I think my, my advice would be just to, to think about it. I'm not saying it's wrong at all. And, you know, I have a great life and I don't have any regrets, but I think we all owe it to ourselves to realize that that's what's happening and that we should think about it and just acknowledge that, that there's a lot of that going on. When you look back on your transition going from professional athlete to the work you're doing right now, what's something that you have learned about yourself through this career change? I learned a lot about myself, especially from that that first career change, is that it's it's okay. It's okay to change. It's okay to accept that your heart's not in something and and it's not failure and it's not a fear of failure that causes it. Because I've had people say to me that, oh well, you know, it was a sort of fear of failure made you stop. I thought about this really carefully, and I know that very competitive people, it's possible that there is an element of that, and I'm not saying I'm immune to it, but that wasn't the reason why I did it. And people say a lot of things, and I think that you have to be true to yourself and, and think that that's not the reason why I did it and that it, it's okay. And, and then I think it's important to think, well, I'm moving on. I need to realize why I'm doing this, and I need to know that it's okay and, and move on, find something else. Last thing I want to talk about before we finish... Rena is Dress for Success, which I know is a charity that's important to you and is doing some great work for women in the greater London area. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that charity and why you're so passionate about it? Well, Dress for Success is an amazing charity. So it's an international charity. I'm, I'm involved in, in London, but what we do is 
we help underprivileged women uh, get back into the workplace and it's a direct help. We dress them, we give them advice on, on interviews because clothes and how you look and how you feel when you're going to an interview, it's very important. There's so, so, so many women who need this kind of basic help in, in order to, to have a chance to start working and to, to get involved. I'm talking about really, really the most underprivileged um, amongst us. So it's a fantastic charity. It does a lot of good work. And as I said, I really like the, the sort of direct impact that it has on lives of not only these women, but their families, their children, their communities. So yes, I'm really, really excited about being involved. Okay. Well, we'll definitely include a link to Dress for Success in the show notes if people want to learn thank more. Thank you. Okay. Well, Rena, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to learn more about you or if they are interested in reaching out, where's the best place they can go to learn more about you or the work that you're doing right now? Probably LinkedIn. That would be a way to, to come find me. Okay. Well, we will include a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And just wanted to thank you so much for telling us more about your life as a tennis player and your transitions along the way into the corporate world and most importantly the importance of thinking critically about your path that you're on in your life and being true to yourself so best of luck with your current work and look forward to talking again sometime thank you very much so i hope you enjoyed hearing rena's career journey and insights on life as a professional tennis player balancing your professional priorities with your personal ones and understanding when it's time to move on now it's time to wrap up with today's mental fuel where i'll talk about the challenges and upside of quitting before we get to today's mental fuel, I wanted to thank Brand Yourself for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Brand Yourself offers simple tools and services to help control what people find when they Google you. To clean up, protect, and improve how you look online, visit brandyourself.com and use promo code RELAUNCH to get 50% off a premium membership. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we cover today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I want to talk about quitting and pick up on something Rena mentioned about deciding that she had nothing left to prove, either to herself or to anyone else, which fed into her decision to leave tennis behind. And I want to start by saying quitting sometimes gets such a bad rap. If you just look at any motivational movie, book, poster, quote, article, song, or anything in the media, it always seems to be about never giving up, about hanging in there, about staying the course no matter what it takes. And on the one hand, I love that philosophy. I'm pretty competitive myself, and I actually thrive on this idea of being able to outlast the competition and to persevere just a little bit longer, which allows you to eventually accomplish your goals. I've seen how hanging in there just a little bit longer, making one more phone call or one more attempt can actually make the difference between achieving what you want and quote unquote failing. So I think people often attribute quitting to failure, but I'd like to propose that quitting is sometimes actually the best thing you can do for your life and career. In my career, in most cases, I'm actually quite resistant to the idea of quitting. And I think that's because I've just seen how not giving up has actually served me quite well in my career. But sometimes, like Rena, I reach a point where I don't feel like I have anything left to prove. I'll give you a couple examples going all the way back to my days in college. For most of my life growing up, I played the violin. And by the time I got to high school, I was pretty serious about it. And it became one of the three core parts of my identity. 
with the other two probably being tennis and academics. So by the time I was heading off to college, a lot of my classmates around me were asking me if I was going to go to music school or at least major in music. It's funny, actually, last summer at my 20-year high school reunion, the question I got asked the most by far by my former classmates was whether I still played the violin. But by the time I went to Northwestern, which has a pretty serious music school, I remember auditioning for the orchestra, getting in and showing up to rehearsal the first day. And it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that I didn't want to play the violin anymore. It had been a great part of my life and it was so formative during my youth, but I just felt like I'd done everything I wanted to do in music. So I quit that orchestra after one rehearsal. A few years later, another example was after investing many years working toward becoming a doctor. I got into medical school only to quit after two weeks. And after 10 years working in brand marketing, I got to a point where I felt like I'd managed the brands, the projects, campaigns, product launches, and kind of teams I'd wanted to. So I decided to walk away. In every one of these examples, I got to a point where I felt like I had nothing left to prove not to myself and not to anyone else. And at the same time, in every one of these examples, I could make the argument that I still had unfinished business. There was always the next thing around the corner, whether it was making it to the next level orchestra or actually finishing medical school or maybe moving on to be brand director of a complex multinational team. These are all things I could have attempted to do, but never got a chance to do because I made the decision to quit before I could finish what I started. And therein lies the challenge. Because even in those situations where it's clear you're no longer growing or feeling engaged or excited by the task at hand, there's always something more you could do. There's always another carrot dangling in the distance. That's why quitting has always been so hard for me. Because it almost always involves walking away from that next thing I could achieve by just staying a little bit longer. At the same time, I found that giving up is a necessary step you have to take to make room for other pursuits you feel are more worthwhile. So that's my long way of saying three things. First, that quitting is often just as hard, if not harder to do than staying the course because there will always be unfinished business. Second, that experiences do have shelf lives. They can expire when your own life and career evolves. And third, that you always have a choice to leave it all behind. Sometimes it really is okay to just walk away. This takes me to a quote from Robert Two: Respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. So my challenge to you is to consider whether one of the carrots you've been chasing in your career is still worth it. I'm talking about a carrot that forces you to stay the course just a little bit longer. Maybe it's a bonus or a promotion or just achieving any milestone you've felt could be important to you. If achieving that still serves you and aligns with where you want to take your life, great. Hang in there and stay the course. But if hanging on is no longer serving you in the way you had hoped, just remember that you always have a choice. You can always walk away. 
Before we wrap up, I just wanted to thank you for being a subscriber and listener to Career Relaunch in 2017. Over the past year, a lot of you have sent me some really nice voicemails, reviews for the show, and even emails to share your personal stories. Although I do try, I can't always share every single one of those comments on the show, but I just wanted to let you know that every single note and review I've received from you in 2017 has really meant a lot. And hearing from you really does fuel my motivation to keep creating more episodes. I also wanted to thank every single guest who's appeared in each of the 20 episodes of 2017. If it weren't for you and the honest stories you've been willing to share, Career Relaunch wouldn't even exist. This is the very last episode of the year before we cross over to 2018, but stay tuned for more interesting guests I'm really excited to feature in the new year, including a former secretary who relaunched her career after being homeless for three years, and someone who used to work for a circus in Vegas and is now a full-time voiceover artist. With the new year right around the corner, this is often the time of year when people have a moment to reflect on their careers. So if you do enjoy the show and you know someone in your life who's been struggling with whether they're on the right career path, I'd really love for you to share this episode with them by sending them to careerrelaunch.net slash 32, where you can also find a summary of all the key concepts and notes from today's show. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 32. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community and a special thanks again to Rena Aini for sharing her story with us today. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I hope you have a great rest of the holiday season and finish to your year. I'm Joseph Liu and I'll see you in 2018.